0: may sound familiar to you. The reason being, that echoes the great promise God had given to Abraham a few chapters before. This is God's huge blessing, his divine promise that starts with Abraham and is going to carry on through the generations, through the ages. That God would be their God who would gather people, many nations to himself and bring them to a promised land and bless them. This is the promise of God that God would remind his people time and time again throughout their history so for one of the sons to receive such a blessing it's a huge deal and the expectation is that it would fall on Esau the older one except for a major plot twist Rebecca the mum calls Jacob and says hey look I'm going to kill this goat and then you put these goat skins on so that you can be, become hairy then she grabs Esau's clothes and dumps them on him and says you go, and go to your father Isaac pretend you're Esau and receive this blessing so Isaac goes sounds good let's go he goes, and his father feels his arms. He like, oh, you're hairy. You sound like Jacob, but you're quite hairy, and you smell like Esau. And so he says, I am Esau. And so Isaac blesses him. Oh, but, Major detail, Isaac's blind at this stage. You're probably wondering. He's like, surely he would have seen. Because no, of his old age, he's blind. Sorry, that's a major detail. I've missed that. So he's blind because of his old age. Uh, and Jacob receives this blessing. And you can imagine, Esau's gone out to hunt for a, a beautiful goat and then bring it back to his father, and he finds out on his return, that Jacob, his younger brother, has nicked his blessing. It's like coming back from the shops to find someone's smashed into your car or keyed it and walked off, or someone's nicked your bike. He feels completely robbed. And at that point, you sort of feel sorry for Esau. All he's done is just gone to find some nice food. He's a victim of his brother's trickery. But then you look at Esau's life and you find out a little bit more. A few chapters before in Genesis 26, Esau, he goes and he marries two Hittite women, Canaanite women, who worshipped other gods. See, Esau was compromising on his relationship with God, taking it for granted. And it actually says in Genesis 26, it brought great grief upon his parents. Then you go back even further. Genesis 25, he's out hunting on a hot day like this. He comes back, he's knackered. And he sees his brother making this nice lentil stew with some bread. And he says, give me me some of that food. And Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And you'd expect Esau to say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. But for some lentil stew and a piece of bread, he says, fine. You take my birthright. And the Bible actually says he despised his birthright. That is what Esau's like. Now you're getting a bit more of a picture of what these two brothers are like. You look at them and you think, I'm not sure either of you deserve any blessing at all. See, based on performance, none of them deserves their father's love or their blessing. One has abused their birthright and their position as the older brother. The other resorts to trickery, to try and entice blessing. See even on human standards, we look at that and go, that is ugly. But Jacob and Esau reveal the ugliness and brokenness of our hearts. And it carries on throughout the history of God's people. In both the descendants of Israel, who are the descendants of Jacob, and Edom, the descendants of Esau. It carries on continually. You think God's people would be any better? Well, you get to Jeremiah chapter 9, and Jerusalem is told this by God. He says, you're going to be a heap of ruins. The haunt of jackals sounds familiar, like verse 3. And I will lay waste the towns of Judah so no one can live there. See, the people of God were facing the exact same judgment as Edom. And what we realize is throughout history, nobody deserves God's love Absolutely nobody. Paul was right when he said in in Romans 3, there is nobody righteous, not even one. And yet, in that, God says, yet I have loved Jacob. Can you imagine the Israelites hearing those words from the prophet Malachi? There was nothing love about, about Israel. They knew that. Except this. Except God's sovereign love for them. Except God's mercy for them. God's promise to them that started with Abraham, their forefather, and that continued through Jacob and to them now. In the messiness of all this stuff that happens with Jacob and Esau, what we see come to the surface is God's sovereign love for his people. See, this book, this Bible, is actually all about God's love for those people who don't actually deserve it. That is what it's about. It's not about how good we need to be to receive God's blessing and his love. It's all about God's promise to his people that he has loved and will love his people right to the very end. The Apostle Paul quotes these exact verses in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. He quotes them in Romans 9. He says this, It does not therefore depend on human desire. This is verse 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. We don't proudly expect like Esau despising our birthright as God's children or cunningly try and grasp like Jacob did. None of us deserves God's love but God chooses to have mercy on Jacob and his descendants because that is who God is. That is God's right to determine upon whom his love is directed. And it's only because of God's sovereign love that we can actually come into his presence that we are gathered here as his church today. There's another important detail in the story of Jacob and Esau. Before, even, before they were born, God made it clear that the older would serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. See, God chooses to love the younger, the weaker, the undeserving. Israelites would know this. When they heard Malachi say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, they would recall the story and they'd be reminded once again that he didn't choose them because they were a great nation because they were performing well, that they would perform well. No, God chose to love them because they were in fact the weakest. That is what God explicitly says to them in Deuteronomy chapter seven. I've, I've, I've been getting to know a few more people at, at the church and I found out there are a fair few people who love to swim in the sea. Who likes to swim in the sea? I, I really don't, but quite, yeah, see, there's quite a few of you. Um, so see, I've crossed the English Channel. Woohoo! Um, And it's by ferry, by train, or by plane. Not much to talk about there. But imagine if one of you guys who are sea swimmers comes back one day and says, you know what, I swam the channel, the English channel. You probably really would love to do that today in this sort of weather. But we would be mighty impressed, right? That is worth talking about. See, the weaker the vessel, the greater the glory. In the world's eyes, the Israelites were the most unworthy. There was nothing good about them, but through them, we would see all the more clearly God's grace and love poured out upon his people. This is a pattern of scripture time and time again where the weaker or the younger is used to show more of God's love and glory. We see that with Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was the younger one. We see that with Joseph and his brothers, with David and his brothers. And this is in such contrast to the pattern of this world. See, the world that we live in is so quickly drawn to those who are impressive for whatever reason that might be. Our world is all about the impressive ones who gain followers, who climb the charts, who lead the way. Even as Christians, I think we often fall into that trap. We can fall into that trap of thinking we're only loved when we perform well, when we're impressive. I feel like the church has bought into that idea a lot in the recent years as well. And we're seeing a lot lot of the mess that comes from that. But we start to think God loves us because we are impressive as a church, because we do things a certain way, because we're cutting edge. But you see, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't love us because of our performance, because of how good we are. God loves us because of his promise to his people. The promise of God is contingent on God's mercy alone, on God's love alone, not on our performance, not on Israel's performance. It's exhausting, isn't it? Living under, the, under kind of performance-driven love where you're constantly having to look back and think, what if? What if they change their mind? What if things change? What if they find out something about me that I, I really don't want them to find out about? What if there's this huge burden constantly? But you know what? God knows every detail about you. There are no what-ifs that are possible with God and yet he still says, I have loved you. Throughout the Bible, he's seen his people do all sorts of things. And yet, he still sends his prophet Malachi to tell them, look, tell them this, Malachi, I have loved you because of my promise to my people. Come to me and know that I am your God and you are my people. And you're going to find this love that this world cannot give you. Perhaps that's a question for some of us sitting in this room this afternoon. Perhaps you've come just exploring, who is, what is Christianity about? Who is this God? What? Are, what are we about, really? It's about this. And if, you're, if that's you, would you, come, would you come? Can I invite you to come to him, to come to God and rest in his great love? Will you come to know God who loves you no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how you feel about yourself? If you come to him in true faith, in true humility, God says, look, this promise is for you. For for others of us who are sitting here who who would say that we trust in God, you might be sitting here looking back on your life for the past week, even the past 24 hours, even this morning, thinking, oh, I've been rubbish. Perhaps there's a a deep battle of sin that you're you're struggling through. Perhaps you're feeling like you're, you're drifting in your relationship with God. And you start thinking that lie to yourself that God couldn't love me any longer. you come this afternoon and, and you know God and you're seeking his mercy, you hear these words of, of God himself. I have loved you. Not because of your performance, but because of my promise to you. But I know, I know these words are powerful. That those words that God speaks, I have loved you, I love you, they are some of the most powerful words that we can speak and we can hear. And when those words are true, they give life to a relationship. But when those words are empty, they can be destructive. And this is what the second thing that God wants us to see. He wants us to see that these aren't just empty words and empty promises. God wants us to know that his love is based on proof, not pretense. That's a fancy word for pretend. I just had to get a P in there. You know how it is. God doesn't want to pretend. He wants to show you for real. Okay, so I have a three-year-old kid Some of you might have noticed her on a little scooter coming up here earlier. Um, She's really sweet most of the time. Sometimes she riles me up. Trust me, kids are sinners as well. And so sometimes I lose my rag with her. And you might think I'm sweet as well, but trust me, I'm a sinner too. And so I get riled up. We get annoyed with each other. She's three. I'm like, I mean, I'm 37. What am I doing? But there I am. I'm really annoyed with her. And sometimes in my it's still in my anger and my rage, I'm like, I love you. I don't really feel it, and I just say it. I throw those three words out there. And even this little three-year-old looks at me and goes, no, you don't. I can see it in her eyes. She knows. It's so different when I actually repent, get down on my knees, give her a hug, and, and get to a level and say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I look her in the eyes and say, you know what, I really do love you, and I'm really sorry for being a rubbish dad at times. And she says, "I love you too." See, I think we know it when somebody says those words lightly, and they don't really mean it. We know it. And God here wants us to know that He's not pretending. He wants to prove His love for us. He wants us to know that He means it. See, you can you can imagine the Israelites sitting there in Jerusalem, looking around at the temple and thinking, "Man, this is this is weak. Where's the glory gone?" And they look across to Edom, and they start hearing about these descendants of Esau who actually helped them go into exile. They worked with the Babylonians to say, hey, look, we can can mess up with Jerusalem and send the Israelites to you. Questions begin to swell in their minds. Apparently, Edom are going to rebuild their city. And they start thinking, does God really care about us? What if this happens again? Does he really love us? Did he really love Jacob? Did he actually love Esau? In verses 3 and 4, God makes it clear. No, just watch me. Let me prove it to you. Here's the proof of God's love. This is the thing that he's saying here. Any threat to God's promise for Israel, for his people, will be dealt with. Any threat to God's promise for Israel will be dealt with. Edom, who stand opposed to me and my people, will ultimately fall. You see that in verse three in verse 4. Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. No matter how much they can try to rebuild their ruins, ultimately these threats to God's promise will be demolished. God says they will be called What what does he say? Um, End of verse 4. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Not only will they be stopped, but they will sit under God's eternal judgment always. And as he does that, instead, what God makes sure is that his people, the Israelites, will experience the fullness of his promises. He will make sure that the city of Jerusalem, God's temple, God's people, will thrive in the promised land even when it seems unimpressive to them, even when the numbers seem fewer and the temple seems small, that is God's promise. See, that's the thing. We don't be fooled by what seems like weakness because that is where God most often uses and shows his glory. One of the great ironies is that the deepest sign of love, I think, is found in utter weakness. When somebody willingly gives their life for somebody else, that is the irony of humanity. One of my favorite movies is a movie called John Q. I don't know if you've seen it. It's old. It's old. I'm old. It's old. Um, Denzel Washington, one of my favorite actors. It's basically about a story um, about a family who are born with a son, their one and only son who they love so dearly, who has a defective heart. And throughout the movie, you see how much his parents love their son, but they can't afford it. It's in the US, so they can't afford it. And so he storms the hospital with a gun and he takes a bunch of people hostage to get his son on the donor list, saying, save my son. And they try and they try, but they can't find one. And what do you think the next step for him would be to do? He says, you know what? I'm going to lay down my life for my son and give my own heart to him. That is what love does. That is how far it goes. And that is how far God goes To the point that he would send his one and only son to walk this earth. To the point that he would lay down his life for us in the full weakness of humanity. The cross, that was the ultimate sign of the weakness of humanity as they hung naked and ashamed for everyone to see. But there is the most powerful demonstration of God's love for us. And it's through the cross that God deals with all the threats that come to to his promise to his people. So that his people might permanently experience god's love for them and so as jesus cries out it is finished at the cross christ deals with all the threats to life for god's people he deals with that threat of that performance-driven pharisaical sort of faith as he tears the temple curtain in two no longer do we have access to god through performance-driven priests but through the blood-given love of jesus At the cross, Christ deals with the powers of Satan where Christ, now the Prince of Light, would come in full power to bind Satan up once and for all. All of his lies, his deceit, his power restrained. And at the cross of Christ, Christ deals with the deepest threat, that of sin. Sin that twists our hearts, that leads to broken love with our neighbors, our family, our friends. Sin that leads to a separation from a holy God to doubt his goodness, his promises. That can lead us to sitting under God's wrath and judgment as Edom do. See, Christ took that all upon himself at the cross so that not only would would we walk free from the oppression of sin, Satan, and the law, but that we might know just how much God loves us. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is the greatest proof The cross of Christ. Proof of God's love. His promise is not an empty one. Not a pretend pretend I love you. But one that is sealed in the very blood of his own son. And this opens a way for everyone to now come and see. Do you see that in verse 5? You will see it with with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Through Christ there is now the invitation for all to come beyond the borders of Israel. This is no longer about the nations of Israel and Edom, but Malachi points us forward to this greater horizon that is to come. So you see that, glimpses of that, when the Roman centurion at the cross looks up at Jesus and says, surely that man was the son of God. We see that with someone who is an enemy of God's people, Saul, who would see the depth of God's love and turn from persecuting the church to building it up. We see that over the centuries of many who have come to know of God's great love, including many of us sitting here in this room. We need to hear those words, I have loved you. We need to know how much God loves you, how he has shown it to us and how he has proven it to us. So let me, let me land this for us in, in thinking about, okay, what does that mean for us today? What does that look like? God says, I have loved you. So here are two really brief applications as we close. The first is this. If you're trusting God as your Lord and your Savior and if you're trusting in the works of Christ at the cross then know this you are loved because of God's promise not because of your performance. And this plays out in various different ways. Here are four different ways that it can play out. Here's the first For for some of us it means that we need to watch pride because we can so quickly fall into this performance driven love that makes us say "Look, I deserve God's love because of X, Y, Z. Pride is devastating. It is destructive and divisive in any relationship. And it, it will make us diminish God's love and it makes us quick to judge other people. Remember, we all fall short. We're all like Esau or Jacob. We are not loved by God because of our performance, but because of his promise for his people. For, other us, for others this afternoon, you might be facing doubt. Situations are squeezing around you and you might be sitting there feeling really rubbish about yourself, thinking, does God really love me? How could God love me? If only he knew what I was really like. And if that's you, you need to hear these words. I have loved you. I do love you. Find comfort in that. Despite who you think you might be, despite what you've done, God says, look, I have loved you. Not because you've done great things, but because I am your God and you are my child. You know this because I gave my son for you. For others of us, we we might take a step back and look more broadly at the church scene of what's going on in the UK and feel pretty disheartened. Just like the Israelites back then, when they looked around their city and the temple and they thought, this is nothing like it used to be. We can sometimes feel that way. But whenever we start to feel that temptation, hear God say, but I have loved you. Because our faith is not contingent on how big the church is or how much positive influence we have on society as Christians. It's based on God's sovereign love for us, on his promise proved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is actually a wonderful and liberating thing. The pressure isn't on us to perform, but to rely on God's love. The pressure is not on us to show people, oh, look how good we are. It's to show people, look, come and see and know God's great love. The last thing I want to say on this about kind of performance and stuff is there are some of us in this room for those who have faced real evil in their lives, who have been harmed and abused by those who said they care for you, who say they love you. And I I pray that these words would give you comfort to know God loves his people and he will deal with his enemies. Those who do evil, those who stand opposed to God, those who do injustice will be accounted for and they will sit under God's wrath. They will not go unpunished. God is going to call to account every single act, every thought of evil. You can trust God with that. And in Christ we can know that if we trust God, then his love for us is unchanging. Know that Jesus will never abuse his love and care for you. Because you are loved because of God's promise. Not because of what's happened or because of your performance. Here's a second, so that's a big first thing, is one with four sub points. But anyway, here's the second application. look at the proof. The obvious thing is for us to keep looking to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Look to him as evidence of God's love, as I said before. But also something that comes out from this is actually look at the importance of the church. Because she is part of the evidence of God's love. See, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose victorious from the grave. It's just as we sung a moment ago, the church of Christ was born. By his resurrection, Jesus' victory is sealed once and for all. Death is defeated. The results of sin, the chains of Satan, are dealt with finally once and for all. And as the enemies and threats to God and his people are defeated, so the way is made for new life for his people. For his people to come back to God, to build his temple today, to come to his land, to see the city of God restored. And now we're going to see that full city restoration in in the new creation, but he's working at that today. We're seeing it today in Jesus. Let me me ask you to do something. Just look to your right and your left. Just look at the person sitting next to you. Just turn to your right and to your left. It's a little bit awkward, I know, but maybe this will spark some conversation and stuff afterwards. But you know what? Those are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. You are part of the temple of God. You are evidence, living proof of God's love at work today. See, we gather as a church not only to receive blessings and to worship God together but to be that living proof of God's love. And wouldn't it be amazing if we sat here together just constantly reminding one another do you know what? This is how much God loves you. This is how much God loves us. To say to one of you know what? I've messed up in this way but God's love his unchanging love is so good. That would be an incredible picture of the world the watching world to see that so craves genuine love. Verse five, you will see it with your own eyes. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's keep pointing one another to Jesus, the very love of God, and pointing one another to the fruit of his love, to to you guys, to the church. God says, I have loved you. My prayer is that we might know that this week, that we might remember and savor this great love that God has for his people. Let's, let's pray together. Let me give you a moment to, to reflect on what you've heard. Perhaps you need to hear those words again. God says, I have loved you. If you're feeling doubt, if you're wavering, hear those words. Find comfort. Let me give you a moment to reflect on, on what we've heard.